and welcome to this episode of Battling with Business with me, Gareth Tennant. And me, Chris Kitchener. In this podcast, we're hoping to explore the ideas and concepts around teams and teamwork, leaders and leadership, and all things in between. It's a discussion between a former Royal Marines officer and product manager from the world of business, comparing and contrasting our experiences as we attempt to work out what makes teams, leaders, and businesses tick. And this week's podcast is sponsored by... Uh, a glass of water because it's uh, dry January and I'm sure everyone when we're recording this and I'm sure everyone who is involved in dry January will also be sticking to something non-alcoholic so there we go glass of water and today is a little bit different that the sound may be slightly different and that is because this is our first experiment of doing one of these podcasts rather than normally we're sitting in Gareth's uh, office doing this and we're doing this a little bit different today where I'm at home and Gareth you are somewhere else. Gareth where are you today? I am dialing in from New Brunswick Canada where the weather is a balmy minus three degrees and in the last 24 hours we've had 50 centimeters of snow so I barely made it back from dinner having to traipse through a snowstorm. Well, there you go. That that shows how dedicated we are to this podcast. Um, not so much the snow, but I drag you out of dinner early. At the end of the last episode, we had one of our rambles and we talked about standard operating procedures, SOPs and drills. And I think one of the points we made at the end was this. I think it was a question I asked about how do you balance uniformity and adaptability and sort of how do you make that trade off? And I'm I believe there was a statement that you had a story that you were you were interested in sort of talking about. So how about we kick off today picking up on that? And I haven't heard the story, so I'm interested to hear what your story of trade-off of university versus adaptability is. So yeah, I think we were, as I say, discussing that kind of almost paradox of we're espousing. Uh, adaptability and the ability to allow small teams to get on with things the way they see fit, mission command that we've talked about on several of these podcasts. Uh, and then we were talking about at the end of last week about this idea of uniformity and standard operating procedures. And you were saying, well, the military, they've, they've got a book for everything. They've got SOP, standard operating procedures. They've got Queen's regulations and, you know, whether you're you know, at a base in Cyprus or a base in London, the way that you do things is always the same. And, and it creates this sort of conflict in what I suppose we're, we're espousing. But then it occurred to me while we were talking, but we ran out of time, that I have a quite good example of a small team operating relatively independently where the situation did change quite quickly. And as a result of both everybody knowing what the standard operating procedure was and being adaptable to the changing situation around us, we managed to perform much better than the adversary. Uh, I thought I would start with that and then we'll see where that generates discussion and where we go from there. So it was back in 2009 and I was the uh, officer commanding a Royal Marines boarding party on board a, uh, a naval frigate. And we were out in the Indian Ocean doing counter piracy at the height of the piracy crisis 
with the Somali pirates, hijacking commercial vessels and ransoming the crew and the vessel back to the owners for vast sums of money. Um, and so we were detached to find and interdict pirate teams uh, in their small boats and prevent them from conducting acts of piracy um, and where possible to arrest them under the international rules of piracy. There was a particular boarding operation that had taken a good couple of days of finding this group of pirates that we uh, we suspected were in a, a certain area, tracking them and then doing the boarding. It was all about getting up alongside these small skiffs that they had quickly enough to surprise them and overwhelm them with force um, so that they wouldn't try and put up any kind of fight. Uh, and then we would disarm them uh, and investigate from there. And, and that's exactly what we did. And there were 13, I think, from memory, pirates, all Somalis, in two boats that were rafted together, both small skiffs, so small sort of, uh, I would say, seven to ten foot long fiberglass boats. So not a lot of space for 13 people, and certainly not a lot of space for 13 people, plus several members of the Royal Marine boarding team. So quite a cramped environment. And we boarded, secured the vessel, disarmed them, and uh, were then waiting to get direction from higher command on what we were then going to do. And the normal routine was if there was no evidence that would be usable in a court of law to prove that they were pirates, then it was to uh, remove their ability to conduct piracy operations for their ladders, their small arms, and then give them enough fuel that they could get back to the mainland, but would have to go back immediately and therefore cease doing piracy operations. So we were kind of working out how we were going to do that. We were going to put them in one boat and destroy the other. And that took quite a lot of time for the Royal Navy decision-making process. And the pirates got increasingly agitated. And eventually, under the misapprehension, and I have to be very clear, this is a misapprehension, that they thought we were going to destroy all of their fuel and abandon them at sea, which would effectively be a death sentence, they panicked. And the situation went from very, very calm, where we had control, they were being very submissive, and everything felt very safe, to chaos, where 13 very scared very emotional pirates responded to whatever the trigger was one of them you know getting to the point of stress where they panic they all panicked three of them jumped in the water and immediately started drowning they couldn't swim and the other 10 were then trying to overwhelm us and at this point we were in hand-to-hand -hand combat i was at the front trying to talk to one of the Somalis with my interpreter uh, and found myself very, very quickly in effectively grappling with, with one of these guys. Um, we were armed, they weren't. And it occurred to me very quickly that what started as panic for them could very quickly turn into them grabbing one of the weapons and then end up in some sort of Mexican standoff or even worse, panicking and you know, engaging and, and then we end up in a melee firefight but where we're all literally in the same boat on top of each other. I had two sea boats with machine guns stood off 
but what they could do was effectively nothing at that point because we were all together. Um, and I had a helicopter with a sniper above us. And again, the support he could offer was particularly limited at that time because A, it probably from his position didn't seem appropriate to engage and open fire. And I agree, I don't think that would have been the right call. And so not much he could do at that stage either. So the options we had were, were particularly limited. But what we could do was the Marines that weren't currently hand-to-hand -hand grappling, um, that were stood back, could fire warning shots. And that's what they did. So without me having to give any commands, they fired warning shots. And the immediate reaction of the pirates was stop. Uh, and that was enough time for us to then regain control of the situation. And so we went from a position of very, very calm to very chaotic, very noisy, very confusing within a few seconds to after about 30 or 40 seconds, back to complete calm with the Royal Marines having regained control of the situation. Once the warning shot had been fired, that gave us about four or five seconds where they were in stunned silence, where using force, physical force, we restrained the, the people that we were already engaged with and forced them to sit down uh, and then started uh, giving commands to them. At which point, one of the sea boats then came in and pulled uh, the first of the, uh, the three that had jumped in the water into uh, the sea boat uh, and started recovering the, the other two as well. And the, the interesting dynamic was I wasn't really in a position to give clear commands. It all happened very, very quickly. Um, but because we had trained together as a team, as a tactical team, for the previous six or seven months, every day, working through how we do our drills, our standard operating procedures, the muscle memory, the things like how we use our small arms, how we use our weapons, the muscle memory of how we do close quarters battle and the cover each other. And then also going through lots of war games, tabletop exercises, talking about what might happen and how we would respond. We collectively as a team, intuitively knew how everybody else was going to react or how we would want them to react. And so without me having to give any direct orders at that time, the initiative was taken by my troop sergeant to fire warning shots. And then everybody knew within my team how to respond to the opportunity we were presented with when they stopped. And we also knew where everybody was and how we would best be able to regain control um, in relation to everybody else on that boat. The sea boats and the helicopter were repositioning themselves the whole time to gain the best vantage point where they could uh, provide cover or, in the case of the one sea boat, uh, rescue the casualties without ever losing complete over overmatch uh, uh, firepower. So even if one of the pirates had managed to get hold of a weapon and engaged, we probably would have still been able to regain control pretty quickly. That whole situation for me was the combination of everybody knowing how everybody else 
was going to respond based on the fact that we all have a set template muscle memory of how we use our equipment, how we cover each other off tactically, but then using the freedom of initiative to adapt those SOPs based on the conditions at the time. And so through a combination of muscle memory, the fact that we'd rehearsed and practiced and discussed, my team were able to go through this calm to chaos to calm whilst maintaining the initiative, whereas the pirates, I suspect, were driven by panic, fear and stress, and therefore basically were reacting purely off the conditions and had no collective cohesion as a team. So that to me, I think, is it's a very tactical example, but I think it shows the value of having standard operating procedures, but also having the ability to take the initiative at every level, right down to you know, junior marine when the, when the conditions require it. A number of things occur to me as you tell that story. The first of which clearly is, I don't have any stories that come anywhere close to that because the worst story or the most exciting story I have is one day I met someone and they hadn't written a very good user story. And so we talked about it. So what I've learned from this is um, I should have thought very carefully about working on a podcast with someone who does something much more boring than what you have done. But <laughs> trying to make the most of a bad situation, I think this is, I think, I think there's a lot more to talk about in there. And, and I'm going to, mm. I can't believe I'm going to say this, which is, I think there are lots of parallels with the business world and with the product world, even though perhaps there is significantly less uh, danger involved and perhaps in less glamorous circumstances as well and without helicopter overreach. But I want to go back and ask a question which sort of touched on something you didn't talk about. What did you do afterwards? And I mean, I'm assuming that, you know, you, you take care of the situation. Did you sit down with the team and did you talk about it? Because that's one thing you haven't talked about. Was there a debrief and what, what was, how did that work? So there are three phases to the afterwards. There was after the immediate situation, which still required us to be in tactical control. And of course, the fear that caused the pirates to panic in the first place was still there. So we had to explain to them and convince them in that explanation that we weren't abandoning them at sea. The second element was then, once the mission was over, so this is several hours later, try to capture as much as we could of the information about what we thought had happened in what sequence, who had made what decisions as a team for both the exploitation of lessons identified. So do we need to change our tactics? Do we need to think about these approaches in future operations and not just our team, but other raw marine boarding teams. Um, but also if there was any kind of audit um, and review, you know, we had captured uh, the, the post-operational evidence. Um, the third element then of course, was the naval um, review post-incident. And that was quite interesting. So the Royal Navy, I think we've talked about this before in terms of their ability to deal with situations that they've come across before and if you've ever been on a, uh, a warship watching a flood drill or a fire drill it's like watching a ballet it's 
it's mind blowing and it's mesmerizing because hundreds of people across a ship where alarms are going are off and uh, they're tight corridors and they're full of bits and pieces of equipment and there's not a lot of space and they all scurry around like a colony of ants not getting in each other's way and solve the problem and it's beautiful but that's because the navy deal with the idea of a flood or a fire on a ship and know that they need to be able to deal with it very very quickly something like counter piracy is slightly outside of the conventional surface navy's sort of experience set and so the idea of small arms tactics and small team tactics is something that they're not quite as comfortable with as we were in the Royal Marines. Um, but equally, my team would be chaotic and terrible at trying to do flood defence. So you know, it's but, about being fit for the job. The Navy, in their review, focused upon the fact that there was a policy that said there are no warning shots to be fired. So for a long time, there was a, a whole lot of review and lots of different people across the chain of command questioning the validity of the action not based on the situation not based on what happened or what could have happened but based on a piece of policy wording that said that's not allowed and what's really interesting for me is that policy could be broken by the immediate threat to life and that was the situation that we faced and that was the reason that we broke the policy but it took a long time for the navy to get used to that and eventually after several weeks the sergeant that made the decision to fire the warning shot and my team were commended for our actions and it it turned out we were we were viewed very favorably but it took several weeks and in that several weeks several people in the chain of command were using terms like a chargeable offense return to unit and it took several weeks of investigation and i suspect sort of internal assessment for the navy to to recognize what had actually happened uh, and, and thankfully the story ends happily and everybody sort of was allowed to carry on doing their jobs um, but there's, there's three aftermaths there that I think are all different and all require a, a different sort of exploration. The bit that strikes me throughout all of that is preparation and preparation and practice and planning. In fact, I believe there are seven Ps in the traditional sense of prior preparation prevents perfectly poor planning. I think perfectly, but it could be something else. But I, But I think that's really... And I'm, I'm turning this to sort of the business sense here. It's very easy to dismiss this as, well, you know, it's the military guns run around. We've all seen people on the TV doing this, but I don't think it's any different. And actually, I suspect it's something, not I suspect, my experience is, is that business can be very bad at doing this. So I would liken this to what we might call in the business a P1 issue, where a customer phones support, the customer says, and this is typically enterprise, my critical system no longer works. You must do something. And I've worked in a number of businesses where this, this, this could be possible. And at that point, the, it, 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 it's the non-lethal equivalent of a Somali pirates panicking and making a break for it in the sense that 
you have to do something. You have to do something decisive. And actually, no one's written down necessarily what you do in that situation. So the bit I want to kind of dig into or talk more about is the how do you prepare and plan for these things? Because what I found is most businesses are extremely busy trying to run their business. What we look for is sort of a, uh, a happy path, which says everything's working, everything's okay. This allows us to focus on the next thing that adds value to a customer or something like that. The problem comes though, is the moment something, in fact, what typically happens is often something slightly bad will happen. People can deal with that. And then other times something quite bad will happen. And generally people do that. And then you have the day when something very, very, very bad happens. And I've, I've worked at a business where a system went down for all of the customers and it was subsequently discovered that it was a member of staff of the company I worked for who was, in inverted commas, pulling plugs out of the wall and making things go wrong. And that, I think, is a really interesting point about where how do you prepare for that? And I know that you've, you've, we've talked briefly about sort of red teaming before, but I think that's something which businesses miss. And it's easy to say, how much time should we spend on very rare cases? And the answer is probably more than you think, because if it's that bad a situation, you need to fix it because it's almost, it can often be business critical. But the other thing is, even if, even if the situation itself is not, business threatening your business threatening actually the time it takes to rectify that becomes quite high if you haven't had planned so one of the things that um i remember this is this is nowhere near like yours was when i was briefly in the military we talked about what would happen if there was an incident and there was a simple process you would indicate who was the incident commander and then you would say okay these are the roles and responsibilities. You over here, you're this, you over there, you're that. And then there was some SOP. So I, I, I was going to say, I don't think my experience told me there's not enough of that inside business. So I, I, I agree with you. So firstly, I would say, apart from achieving my boyhood dream of hand-to-hand combat with pirates, which are, yeah, I believe the wonderful. phrase. Uh, absolutely. And apart from peg legs, bottles of rum and eye patches, you know, I, I have ticked that box. Um, <laughs> But in terms of the it's similar to business, um, I agree with you. I, I think the context is clearly very different, but it's about the adaptability of small teams to operate in unfamiliar environments. And we've talked about this before, the ability to enable people to recognize that a situation has changed such that they now need to do something different is all about preparing people to to take that opportunity and and to make sure that they are empowered and we use that term a lot i realize that but they are empowered to make the decision to operate differently when they recognize that situation. Well, let's, um, let's dig into that one because, I mean, again, I think, you know, the only thing people are going to remember from this episode is fighting pirates. So let's stick to the, the pirate motif. You, you've talked about the fact that there were drills that you did. You also talked about the fact that members of your team who 
and I use this term from a role perspective, were junior to you who normally would look to you for orders. Yeah. Let, let, let's talk about those two things. The first thing is, just because I'd like to know, how do you do drills? Like, literally, how did you practice for getting on boats and how do you know who stands where and who does what? And then secondly, maybe the more nuanced bit, the first one's sort of just gratuitous, you know, who dares wins kind of stuff. But the second one is interesting, which is how did you sit down with your team and how did you, to use our language, empower your sergeant and potentially other people, more junior members of the Marines who normally would look to you to say, boss, fire, don't fire. How did you prepare them for that moment? Did you explicitly talk through situations? So let, let, let's start with the, you know, the exciting gung-ho stuff. How do you do drills to get on a boat? And how do you, how do you prepare to board a pirate skiff? Yeah, so the answer to both of those questions is quite similar in that it's two parts. One is the wider training of a Royal Marine leads to the specific training for that situation. And that's the answer to both bits. So the first bit of you know, how do you train to board a boat? Well, the first thing is you train to use your individual weapon and you train to use your personal equipment and then you build to how you use that in a team and in basic training this is where it starts and we've talked about the Royal Marines ethos and the culture and and all of those good things before but that's really important even that let's go a bit deeper so because I think there's there's so many of these things we take for granted like you say you know in the Royal Marines we practice for this one I, I, I want to kind of well, I like this. This is sort of an interview this week. I want to I want to poke on this, which is that sounds like repetition. That yep. sounds yep. like planned repetition. And it sounds like everyone stopping at the end and saying, did that work? Did that not work? I'm, I'm probably oversimplifying and maybe even leading the witness, but go one step further. How do you practice assaulting a place? How do you how do you get good at that? with a group of people who either have never done it before or have never done it before in that way? So the things that aren't going to change is repetition. So the way my rifle works isn't going to change no matter how complex the building is that I need to assault or how complex the ship that I need to board is going to be. So the things that aren't going to change, I need to make sure I'm not having to think about. So that becomes something that has to go into the bracket of muscle memory. So things like how you use a weapon safely is something that is trained through repetition over and over again. So that every Marine in a section knows how to use their weapon and the section commander doesn't have to worry about individual weapon safety. Of course, if they see things that are outside of that norm, they will rectify it. But as a default, everybody is safe to operate with their equipment. Then you start to focus on the things that are going to change. And the way to do that is to start with the basics. So if you do the basic well, then you as a team will be able to operate in more complicated situations. And you build slowly. So there's kind of, I suppose, a, a romantic notion that high-performing elite forces you spend every day thinking about how they're going to climb the legs of oil platforms or high altitude, low opening insertion from parachutes. 
But way before any of the special weapons and tactics, it starts with the, can you operate as a team in a slightly changing environment, adaptively and competently, the basics. And you do that over and over again. And you would naturally, by doing things in you know, the outside world, there are always going to be slight changes. So the ground is always going to be slightly different. And you start to build as a team a, a shared consciousness of every time uh, we find ourselves in a situation where X happens and the ground is, you know, hilly and there's high ground to the right, then we'll, we will probably, as a default, do a right flanking assault where we're going to take position on the high ground. We're going to move an assaulting force forward. The people on the high ground will provide uh, suppressive fire and we will assault through. And that is a combination of the doctrine, a drill that we've practiced, and an appreciation of how that fits into the current context. The second point is then when you start looking at really specialist tactical environments, so a boarding team, there are additional skills that you need that you perhaps didn't need before. So you will practice those skills. And as a small team, you can test each other. So uh, another example I have was just before going to Afghanistan on my first tour, as part of basic training, certainly at the time when I went through, counter ID operations were, we talked about them, we did some stuff, but it wasn't the focus. Whereas pre-deployment for Afghanistan, absolutely the focus. And so we would test each other. Um, and we would, my sergeant would uh, take us up to a, a local beach that wasn't far from where we were based. And we would bury metal objects in the ground and test each other. And it was a challenge and it was a competition. And we do things like, could you take apart and rebuild the mine detection equipment blindfolded? Because if you can do it blindfolded, you can do it in the dark. If you can do it blindfolded when a troop of Marines that are your peers that respect you are watching, then you can do it in the dark under pressure. Then, you know, when something breaks on patrol, you can fix it. You can, so you're so comfortable with the, equipment and the capabilities you've got that you can start to play as a team in operating in different environments then it comes on to the how do you practice for different eventualities within that given tactical context and that's probably a good time to pause for a quick break and let's keep that concept going of planning for things that are slightly different. So let, let's take a quick break and we'll be back with you in a second. All right, and we're back. So I think before the break, you were asking me two questions. One that I just answered, which was about how do you prepare teams? And the second part of the question, which I was just about to start answering, was around how do you plan for changes in eventualities within a given tactical context. I, I've already mentioned sort of tabletop exercises and red teaming, and this is really important. The first thing about a red team is it can't be driven by the normal chain of command. So one of the beautiful things about small team empowerment is although there is a team commander, and in this case, I was the officer, I was the team commander, and there was one troop sergeant. We were all quite, I would say, 
as a team comfortable in each other's presence. And although I was the officer and there was one sergeant who was the senior NCO, we operated on a first name basis and we operated as a very, very small team amongst a wider team of Royal Navy. So we were Royal Marines and that was quite important. And although I got some raised eyebrows from some of the other uh, senior NCOs uh, and officers from the ship's company of the various ships I served on, it was quite important that we were first name terms and that the traditional role of officer, senior NCO, junior NCO, Marines was kind of distilled into small operating team. And whilst I had a very specific role as the officer and my troop sergeant had a very specific role, tactically, we had a lot of the same roles across the team. I mean, one would argue, and, and you know, <laughs> I think it's dangerous for me to do this this time, but I want to I, I keep sort of bringing it back to the business. I think you still had the roles and responsibilities. You had the accountability, but actually you had trust and you found the most effective way to organize your team. And I, I think, I wonder whether just because you don't get all the great stories, I'm going to have to tell some stories about agile methodology at another time. But does that, does that resonate with you? Because I think it's, I think for me, that's the difference, which is the military typically has that chain of command and has the, you know, we don't do that. And yet you, you see this in this classical special forces units where the, the those sort of, badges mean less and it's more it's the distillation of leadership and it's the distillation of roles and responsibilities and the goal or the mission becomes more, almost more important than anything else yeah so firstly i would say i'm not uh, and never have been sort of what we would consider special forces and so it's difficult for me to talk from that perspective but certainly from my teams and the specialist operations we were doing yeah the, the the chain of command whilst still important the tactical focus it was less important because the the way we were operating the the decisions having to be made were being made by whoever was in the best position to do it at the time and so when boarding a ship we carry out a version of close quarters battle so the way that um, you would clear through a building is very similar to how you would clear through a ship there are some nuances and the, there are some differences but those are broadly the tactics you use and what happens as you're going through building or a ship or a structure um, is people get used up they take cover positions covering the maneuver of other people in the team and very very quickly you use up people. So you can't always go through in the same order. So what ends up happening is everybody in the team has to be good at every other bit of the job. So everybody has to be the lead person to breach a room. Everybody has to be the covering person to let somebody go past. And, and depending on the shapes and you know different ways doors open or ladders or pathways or whatever it is, there are different SOPs, but they are conducted by whoever is most appropriate to do it and so you go through these um and, and when you're training to do it it's very clunky and you go through 
until you get smoother and faster. And, and like you say, you build that mutual trust. So it doesn't matter if you're a 20 year sergeant or a five year captain or a six month Marine, if you're at the front of the stack, you're the person calling the shots because you're the person who can see what the threat is and make an assessment about what's required. And that's why the team dynamic is slightly different. I think the other thing is when we're red teaming and wargaming, it's really important to allow everybody to have ideas about what issues might happen and what the mitigations and responses to that could be. Um, because it, it's a cliche, but to say there's no monopoly on good ideas, people have got different experiences and people have a different view on things. And it's that collaboration in the discussion that leads you to thinking about, oh, I hadn't even considered that eventuality or that possibility, but then you talk through it. It touches on our diversity thing we, we, we've we talked about in, in, in previous episodes. But I, and I also want, Absolutely. want I, I want to come back because I think one of our most overused words in this podcast has been empowerment. But actually, I want to go back and point to something you said, which I think is the purest form of empowerment. You said, and I'm going to paraphrase you somewhat, it doesn't matter whether it's the 20-year sergeant, the five-year captain, or the six-month Marine, the guy at the front makes the call because he's the only one that can see what's going on. That, to me... Is empowerment that to me says everybody trusts that person to go do his job he everyone trusts that person and that person knows everybody trusts me that to me seems like sort of the purest hyped up form of empowerment but i i would ask everyone who's listening to this particularly in a business situation have you done that have you empowered people to do something that would and I and the, the the language I use with my teams is: Have you empowered someone to the point where you're uncomfortable? And I think if you said to anyone and said, "Would would you put a six month young squaddy marine in front of you with a weapon, and if they get it wrong, you could get hurt?" I think lots of people would say, "Well, don't be silly. I'm going to put the twenty year sergeant at the front." When actually the answer is no, because it's, it's important to do that and it's important to empower people. So that, I, I love that as the purest form of empowerment, which I think directly translates. Have you empowered your team to a point where you were uncomfortable recently? And if you have, were you disappointed or were you frankly more often than not incredibly pleased and surprised? And that, that I would imagine, I mean, again, I don't know, but the, the six month Marine, I would imagine at the end of that process says I could become the 20 year sergeant over this. And so there's a a virtuous circle there. Yeah, I I completely agree. And actually there are, this is anecdotal. I don't have any statistics to hand, but amongst teams that operate like that, certainly in the military, there are a greater number that go on to uh, commission and become officers and There are lots of very, very junior Marines, junior soldiers, junior sailors who go on to quite important positions very, very quickly, even though they might not be a particularly senior rank. um, They tend to find a niche where they are managing 
large teams often with people of senior rank in them because they are the domain experts. So I think there is definitely a relationship between the opportunity to be empowered and how that plays out in building their confidence at managing team dynamics. I think bringing it back to the business world, I quite often talk about lessons from the military. One of the things I'm very conscious of is this idea of romanticizing you know, what the military does and focusing on the, the glamorous aspects. Well, actually, it's quite often the unglamorous bits, but it's the mundane bits that are the true lesson. So fighting pirates is you know, very exciting and it makes for good anecdotes and stories. But the important bit was the six months before where we laboriously did drills on the flight deck to practice marksmanship, to practice moving around each other so that we would maintain lines of, lines of cover and lines of fire without getting in each other's way. We tabletopped and wargamed to the nth degree, sort of the most bizarre and strange scenario that you might find because when it happens, the impact is high. And that's the lesson. So I quite often talk about how, um, you know, I think we have this romantic idea that the lessons that come from the military are about you know, great leaders. And the reality is there are very, very few, they do exist, of course, but there are very few sort of inspirational leaders who you know, got up and charged the machine gun nest when everybody else was cowering and that inspired them to go. Actually, what happens is you have teams that operate together very, very well. And the good leadership comes from the hard work, building that mutual trust, empowering people to make decisions, empowering people to be in uncomfortable situations where they are having to recognize the change and make the decisions. Not the you know, romantic ideal of the, you know, the senior officer outwitting the enemy or you know, through sheer brilliance and bravado. So, and we've talked about this before, Chris, you know, all the CEOs that read the books, that's great, brilliant. And I encourage that to, to continue, but you've also got to make sure that your junior managers, that your shop floor assistants, that everybody in the organization is developing, not just the C-suite. Well, I, I, I was going to ask more questions, but you know what, I think you eloquently summed up the value of this and so i wonder whether now is a good time for us to pause as i say i'm gonna to have to go away and come up with some very very exciting and dangerous stories about agile and scrum but i i wonder whether sort of the the the, the follow-up to this is the flip side and I, I as a last thing to sort of plant a seed for everyone is i wonder whether there's a statement there that says for the military the purpose is so clear that six months of training is acceptable or not, not just acceptable, necessary in business. I'm not convinced a business says I've got time to do six months of training. And so maybe that there's a, there's a, there's another thing for us to sort of dig in another time to say, when you were on board ship where you didn't have a month to sit and practice how did you how did you keep your skills up how did you learn how did you adapt and change which may be more of a proxy for business because i think businesses 
is busy trying to do something else at the same time. They maybe don't have that same same luxury. So let's let let's pick that up later. But Gareth, thank you. That's um, always always fantastic to hear you talk about some real world examples. And frankly, piracy. How can you beat piracy and running out with guns? Yeah, thanks, Chris. In fact, thanks for the opportunity. Um, I, I would also say I find these things less exciting because it, it's what I do. And I find the conversations about uh, the way it applies to business just as exciting, um, which people probably find hard to believe. But there is definitely something around the unusual is, what you're in, is, is what's interesting. Um, so, you know, let, let's keep the stories on both sides going. Well, uh, I'm not going to let you go because I go to parties and when people ask me what I do and I say I'm a product manager and I work with stories and agile and engineering and stuff like that, I too have to say to them, I know it sounds exciting, but, you know, it's just the job I do. Someone has to do it. So you're not the only one. All right. Well, look, that, that's about all for this episode brought to you from the wilds of Canada with, I think everyone could hear a snowplow beeping backwards and forwards in the background. I think that's what it is. Yeah. And, and from uh, deepest, darkest uh, Oxfordshire as well. Thank you very much for joining us. If you liked what you heard, please tell your friends. Uh, we'd also love to have you join the conversation with your stories, ideas, suggestions for topics, questions or requests for more stories, whether they be military or business. Uh, you can follow us, suggest future topics, or ask us questions at, at battlingwithbiz, and that's biz with a Z on Twitter, presuming it still exists today. Uh, but for now, though, uh, goodbye from me in Oxfordshire. And it's goodbye from me in snowy New Brunswick. <laughs>